husband five years ago. We were playing ultimate frisbee and we're part of this group that just kind of gathers in the park. One Saturday he had sent me a message online asking if I wanted to go to coffee or something and so then yeah that's how we got a relationship going from that point on. So when we first started looking for a home, we weren't sure what neighborhood we wanted to live in. We started looking at homes in North Aurora and really fell in love with the area. Everybody that I've met or encountered seems really nice as well. And there's also diversity within the neighborhood. I'll see different people, different ethnic backgrounds. I even have some neighbors who I can talk in Spanish with, which has been kind of cool. We started learning about Chapel Street Church when during the pandemic we saw some signs around people's lawns that were like, oh, Chapel Street, you know, um, keep God close, everybody else should be six feet away. I thought that was a fun way to engage with the neighborhood as well as just seeing how many of our actual neighbors are attending this church. So my husband and I checked it out, started watching online, and then when the campuses opened up again we went to Mill Creek. We visited there one Sunday and we met Pastor Sterling and we told him yeah we're new we're here from North Aurora. He goes North Aurora? There's a campus opening in North Aurora this fall and we we're like what? And so he's like I'm gonna have you meet Pastor Andrew who also happened to be there that Sunday so we got to meet him right away and he was telling us about the church and just got to share in the excitement of wow we could have a campus right by our home that we could walk to. We could be part of a launch which is something we haven't done before and just get to see God develop and build a church campus near us. When the campus actually launched in September 2021, we were very excited and very ready to get involved. And it was very meaningful for, I would say, myself, my husband in particular, because now we started to meet the faces and the families associated with the signs that were in the lawns during the pandemic. It was a big piece of us feeling connected and excited about building a church. So being part of a neighborhood church in a neighborhood that I live in has been really meaningful because it creates a different level of concern for my neighborhood. I feel like I want my neighbors to know about Jesus, but I also want them to feel like they can have a place to come to and just not just turn to me as a neighbor, but also they know that they can turn to Chapel Street as a church. And my husband and I really have a desire to help serve in the church. So wherever there is a need that presents itself, um, we like to just step up because we're in a time in our lives where we don't have children, um, we're right by the church, we work from home, and so we really have a lot of time and availability that we want to dedicate to serving the Lord. I've been a part of other churches before that have you know, a vision to expand, but when I understood Chapel Street's specific mission of being a neighborhood church and in the community, it's really neat to experience that and to see the impact that that can have because it's now a center point of the neighborhood. Since we've launched the North Aurora campus, uh, it's really been instrumental in getting me excited about you know, having a relationship with God and a relationship with others. And it's also raised a level of awareness and concern and uh, passion for my community that I want my neighbors to know about this church. I want my neighbors to know Jesus. When I think about a year from now, five years from now, it's very exciting to consider all that God's going to do here in this neighborhood, all that He already has done. When you can reflect back already on His faithfulness and it's only been a year coming out of a pandemic, I mean, God's going to do so much more and we're so excited and we are here for it. When I first saw Rachel share that story um, online, I thought, I want to capture what she says. 
she, she articulates our vision better than I do sometimes. And uh, just the, her heart her, and her joy for what God is doing at North Aurora and Mill Creek and all around each of our campuses. And we do talk about being a neighborhood church around here. Uh, and, we, and we specifically mean our region, our neighbors. But we have neighbors all around the globe, really. And we serve them. We have neighbors and brothers and sisters in Christ in all parts of the globe. And you may remember when I was, uh, had the, I had to go suffer and serve Jesus in St. Croix last January. Some of you might remember this. Uh, but, you know, somebody has to follow where the Lord leads. Um, but I got to meet some very dear brothers and sisters in Christ there uh, who are doing remarkable work uh, on the islands. And two of them, dear friends of mine, are here visiting us to learn from uh, some of the things that we're doing, how they can t- transplant that there as I went and learned from them. So I'd like to bring up right now Pastor Enoch King and his new wife, his uh, month-old wife, uh, Chanel. So let's welcome Pastor Enoch and Chanel. This is Pastor Enoch. He came and we, it rained for them when they came to the... Kind of like it rains in the islands. Yeah. Almost never. Almost never. Yeah. Remember, do you remember when I went uh, spearfishing? I told you I almost died? It was his fault. <laughs> so I guess I should start with a public apology to this church. <laughs> On behalf of my family and the family of the Way of the Cross Baptist Church, I already apologized to his wife yesterday. <laughs> I sincerely apologize for almost taking the life of your pastor. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks be to God. You know, we're, we're just gracious to be here with you today. Thank you for your generosity, your hospitality, and for all that God is doing in and through your lives. I want you to know that Chapel Street is touching lives all around the world. You may not see it immediately. You may not even understand your impact, but God is using you tremendously to advance the gospel of Christ. So thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, let's, let's just join me as we pray for Pastor Enoch and his wife and their ministry. Father, thank you for friends near and far. Thank you that you indeed are at work in, in all corners of the world, and we're just privileged and humbled to be part of that. We pray your blessing over Enoch and Chanel as they visit and learn and bring back what you're teaching them. Uh, and we pray especially your hand on them, a protection in their marriage, a blessing over their church, the way of the cross, and that your gospel would, would, make an, it would light a fire uh, on the island of St. Croix, spreading to the other Caribbean islands, and you use Pastor Enoch and his ministry to do just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It, it, it's not superlative. I did, uh, was close, to, at least I felt like I was close to seeing Jesus when I was spearfishing with uh, Pastor Enoch. As I mentioned to you last week, if you were here, my wife and I returned a couple weeks ago from a trip to the UK. We spent some time in the Cotswolds in England and the Lake District. And one of the things we love to do when we're there uh, is visit old churches. I love to see the architecture, the history, I love to read about the history of those churches. I showed a couple of those to you last week. Here's another church uh, door. This is called the Hobbit's Door of St. Edward's Church in a little village called Stowe-on-the-Wold. Those yew trees are, are close to 1,000 years old on that door. That door is easily, uh, it dates to about 900 A.D. Um, so the, the church uh, is, uh, you know, there's different sections of it, really old. Uh, there's, it's, the legend has it that that door, you'll see another picture here of my wife and I in front of the door. It's not very big. Hobbits could fit in there. Um, but the legend is, or the lore is, that that door particularly was the inspiration for J.R.R. Tolkien's Durin's Door. If you're a Tolkien nerd, any Tolkien nerds in here that I am? Any Lord of the Rings fans? Uh, too few of us left in the world today. Anyway. <laughs> Um, that, that Durin's door is that, uh, that door to the mines of Moria. I remember this from the movies, and they have to figure out that this was the inspiration for his Durin's door. It's not certain if that's the case. I tried to figure it out if it was definitive, but anyway. When we were there, uh, we had a, it was a beautiful, gorgeous church. I love reading about the history, as I mentioned. But if you love uh, the books, Lord of the Rings, 
Then when they make a movie, and there's a lot of talk right now because the Rings of Power series is out, and those of us that are purists like me get very nervous. Are they going to be faithful to the true story? Some of you are like, yeah, you know what I like about the movies? There's no reading involved, so that's that's you. (laughs) But anyway, I, I really want the movie or the depiction to be faithful to the original story. Are you like that? And I get upset if it's not. My wife is like, whatever. Although she feels the same way about the Jane Austen movies, so we have this debate. Well, when it comes to the story of the church, what's our origin story? And how faithful are we to the original, to the intent, to the author's intent? That's what I want to talk about as we finish kind of a little part two of a mini-series on what the church is and what the church does. Last week, we looked at what the church is, the kind of the deep theological truths about what this is that we're a part of, this gathering, not just here right now, but around the globe, in places like St. Croix and in the Ukraine, and all around, in all parts of God's world. God's people gathered. What is the church? Today I want to talk about what the church does. What does the church look like? In John Dixon's book, Bullies and Saints, and by the way, if, you've never, if you want to read a good, accessible book on church history that is honest about our failures and also about the great successes and joys of the, of, and triumphs of Christianity and the church throughout history, this book, Bullies and Saints, is fantastic. He uses this image of Jesus gave the church, his people in the world, a symphony called the gospel to play. And sometimes we have lived as the church and we've played this tune well. And it's been beautiful and attractive to the world. Sometimes we have played it out of tune. The song's right, but we've not played it well. We've we've, We've been bad. You know, other times we've played a totally different song altogether and the world has gone, I don't understand how this doesn't match up with what I see. I like that image. But the heart of it is there is a beautiful song, a symphony, a composition that Jesus wrote that he intended for his people to play. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We looked at this last week. An ambassador, you remember we talked about what's what's an embassy? A U.S. embassy is a little piece of U.S. soil in a foreign nation. You are in a different country, but you're representatives of your homeland. As followers of Jesus, we're ambassadors. That is, we live in this world. We care about this world, but it's not our home. We're citizens of heaven. We represent a different citizenship, a different kingdom. The church is meant to be a little, little piece of heavenly soil on earth where people can look and see all that. There's the kingdom of God. So let's ask the question. If God is making our, his appeal through us, what does our appeal look like? How are we doing? How faithful are we, not just we, Chapel Street, but the church in the world, to what the author intended? us to be doing. I've said many times that there's no perfect church. A friend of mine says, if you ever think you find the perfect church, you should not go there because you'll be the one to screw it up. Right? People are in churches and people are not perfect. There's no perfect church. And that was true, not just now, but from the very beginning of the story of the church. You read through the New Testament letters to churches, they're full of corrections and rebukes and warnings. From its inception, the people of God have been getting things wrong. But with all of their failures and flaws, there is something about the early church story that we do well to study, that we do well to try to recover and understand. That's what we want to do this morning. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. One of the most famous little vignettes of what the church looks like or should look like or look like in the ancient world, what we can learn from it today. And they, the followers of Jesus, the church, 
devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. As I said, you've probably heard this or read this many times. It's a very famous little snapshot of what the early church looked like. But there's a great deal in here for us. Scholars and historians, both Christian and secular, have studied this remarkable movement in history called the church. How did Christianity, which was obscure and tiny and not very influential, this, this Jewish movement, this sect within Judaism, how did it grow and flourish and turn the Roman world upside down? How'd that happen? That's a remarkable story. It's an anomaly, really. What was so radically attractive about the church, about these Christians? By every account, the the, the church grew explosively in the first three centuries. Why? How? What was it about this community of people? I think one of the keys to understanding this is in the very first phrase in verse 42. We go back a couple of slides to the beginning of this. One more. Right here. Is this phrase, they devoted themselves. This word, they devoted themselves. Everything that follows, is, 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 you have to understand what that means. To be devoted is to be set apart for, to be given to. Well, you, you can't touch that. That's devoted for a different purpose. They gave themselves away to someone and something. They were all in for this. This was not a casual extra add-on to their lives. This was it. This is who they were and what they were about. They radically devoted themselves, and their devotion was so complete that it produced all the things we just read, which we'll go through in a minute, and it was different in the Roman world. People looked and said, that, there's something about that life. Even though they didn't understand what they believed. And I want you to think, as we go through this together now, I want you to think of what we're going to study as our origin story. If you you call yourself a follower of Jesus and a member of his family, the body of Christ, the church, then this is your origin story. This is, spiritually speaking, where you come from and what you're a part of. So I want to look at, uh, jump ahead here, six distinctives of the community of Jesus. We'll flip ahead a couple slides there. Six distinctives of the community of Jesus. Can we get to that? We're stuck. There we go. Six distinctives of the community of Jesus. Six characteristics of their shared life together. Six things that shaped their community and that came out of their deep devotion to Jesus. Number one, they were a learning community. They were a learning community. They weren't stagnant. They were growing in their knowledge and their understanding. Acts 2.42, once again, the learning community, there we go. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Hopefully this will keep working here, because I like to play with it. To the apostles' teaching. This is crucial. Their first thing they devoted themselves to was the teaching of the apostles. Who are the, the apostles? The 12 disciples. Well, minus Judas, they added one, but you get the idea. 
The 12 apostles were the leaders of the church when it began. And what were they teaching? Well, you know, the wisdom of the day, their ideas, their insights, their opinions. No, what were they teaching? I won't ask you a question very often unless you know the answer already, and you do. It's the church answer. You can get this one right. What are they teaching? Shout it out like you care about it. Jesus. The apostles then and the church today's primary message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they're teaching. Who Jesus is, what he said, what his life and death and resurrection meant, how it fulfilled everything in the Jewish scriptures, which they grew up understanding. That's what they taught. So when these, this church got together, from the beginning, what they were about is learning and understanding and growing in their knowledge of who Jesus is and what that means for their life. And that should be still true of us today. It doesn't change. It's not like a school class where I'm glad that exam's over, I've moved on to the next subject. You never graduate from the Jesus course. It's lifelong, right? And that's what the church is about. If we ever get off of that and start teaching something else around here, you should leave this church. Or at least pull me aside, take me out to the woodshed and and have a talk to me, right? That's what our message is. Hopefully you know that here. It's what every church's message is. When I went to St. Croix, that's the message I heard Pastor Ali and Pastor Enoch preach there. It's what the church talks about. The apostles teaching Jesus. Now, John Stott puts it this way. Since the teaching of Jesus... Uh, of the apostles in Christ has come down to us in its definitive form in the New Testament, then what it means for us today to be faithful to the apostles' teaching, to be devoted to it, is to be under the authority of the New Testament, which is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. So what it means for us today is that we are under the authority of and all about the message of Christ in the Scriptures. Not as we understand it, not as we want it to be, but as it's been revealed to us in the pages of, of God's word. 2 Peter 3.18 puts it this way. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and in knowledge. That's why we say experience grace and grow in faith here. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So from the beginning. And you want a community that's committed to Growing. You want to be part of a church that's wrestling with hard questions, that's plumbing the depths of Scripture, that's trying hard to apply God's Word to the intricacies of our cultural moment and our life today. Hopefully that's what we're doing. Number two, they were a sharing community. They were a sharing community. Now, I remember when I was in Sunday school. Would it surprise you, by the way, to find out that your pastor was once kicked out of Sunday school? It's true, I was for fighting with Steve Rossborough over NFL pencils, which we got for memorizing scripture, but that's another story I won't tell you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I remember Mrs. Kingston, like in fourth grade, my Sunday school teacher once said, uh, you know, that we, we were fighting or something, I can't remember. I, I had issues when I was younger. And she said, Jeffrey, God is happy when we share. <laughs> which is true, but that's not what this means. It's not like, you know, share your stuff, be nice, uh, although that's part of what they did, sharing their stuff. It, it refers to their common shared life together in Christ. That's what they're talking about. Acts 2, verses 42 through 44. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. This word fellowship is crucial. This is the Greek word koinonia. To the breaking of bread, the prayers, and all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This word and this fellowship word is the Greek word Koinonia, 
comes from the, the root word koine, and it means common. You Maybe you heard the phrase koine Greek, common Greek. It means the common language. Uh, the, the, the literally translates to have, having in common, commonness, what they shared. What we're being told here is these believers came together, and what they had in common in Jesus transcended all of the things that would have otherwise separated them. And it's tempting to think, well, these were all Jews that were friends anyway. No, not so. We know that at Passover and the Feast of Pentecost, it, Jerusalem swelled to four to five times its normal size with visitors from all around the Greco-Roman world who didn't all speak the same language. They all maybe spoke the common language, Greek, but it wasn't their native tongue. They didn't all have the same ethnicity. Or, or, or cultural background. And they come to Jerusalem for the feast and they hear the message of the gospel and their hearts are converted. They repent and they believe and they join the church. 3,000 added to their number that day, we're told, in Peter's first uh, gospel message in Acts chapter two. Think of the logistical challenges of 3,000 people who don't speak the same language or different cultures and ethnicities coming together. What we're being told here is what's holding them together is not programs and strategies it's, it's what they have in Christ. One of the hallmarks of a healthy church is that people love each other and share life together who would otherwise not associate. Socioeconomic differences, racial differences, cultural differences that keep people apart and divide political differences that divide people in our culture. All the time, we see it all the time. But in Christ, those things no longer matter. Those things are second and third and fourth. Because what we have in Jesus is so much stronger. This common life, this koinonia, this shared fellowship. One of the things that has been most difficult in the last two years of the pandemic is that has been put to the test for the church in North America, around the world. And we haven't always passed. We've been pulled apart by the wrong stuff. They were a sharing community. They shared this life together. Acts 4, 32 puts it this way. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Here's that word again. Common. It doesn't doesn't mean they all thought the same way. Everything that mattered, really, ultimately, they had in common in Christ. Tom Holland in his book Dominion writes about this, um, another great book if you're interested in reading about the, the, the story of the rise of the church and the influence of Christianity in the Greco-Roman world and beyond. He says, no other religion took in so many, such a different strata of society in the first century world. Here's what Kenneth Scott Lauderette, Yale professor of history, writes. A history of expansion of Christianity more than any of its competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes Judaism never quite escaped its racial bonds. Christianity, however, glorified in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The Greco-Roman philosophies never really appealed to the masses, but were the domain of the social elites. Christianity drew the lowly and unlettered, and at the same time won the minds of many of the highly educated. It was unique in its breadth of appeal. Men, women, children, rich, poor, different races, different languages, different social classes and levels of education being brought in. In another book, I know I'm giving you lots of books. I hope you like to read. Glenn Scrivener, he wrote a book called The Air We Breathe. He says many of the, his thesis is this, many of the values that we take for granted in our culture today come from the first Christians, though we do not, we no longer know that. Universal human rights, care for the poor, 
racial equality, forgiving and loving your enemies. These things were unheard of in the ancient world. In fact, when the first Christian missionaries went to barbarian lands uh, and, and talked about this is the way to live, so many of their warlords and chieftains and leaders thought, this is crazy. No society can, can survive if you're forgiving your enemies, if, you're, if, if, if everybody's equal. The, the strong have to lead. No, no, actually, Jesus is the one who leads, and he holds us together. But today, we, we celebrate these things, universal human rights, Care for the poor. We don't know where they come from. They come from the Judeo-Christian tradition manifested in the people of God, the church. And it was radically different in the world at the time. Third, a praying community. A praying community. We see it again in the very first sentence in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. It doesn't just mean the prayers said in a public service. It means from its beginning, the church were a people of prayer. Jesus, when, uh, before he ascended to heaven, said to his followers, wait, watch, pray. The Father will send you the Holy Spirit. What were the first Christians doing before Pentecost and the Spirit came and fell on them? Praying. What were they doing afterwards? Praying. Prayer is the, the fuel of the church, at least it should be. Acts chapter one, verse 14. And these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. With one accord, that's the same phrase, koine, fellowship, shared life in prayer. It's what Jesus instructed them to do. And Acts 180 says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And throughout the book of Acts, we see this direct connection between their life of prayer and their life of witness, which we'll talk about in a minute. One more passage here, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to see the connection here between their prayer. The place was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak the word of God with boldness. Prayer, power of the spirit, bold witness. In that order. A praying community. A praying church is a church that's not dependent on its own strength and strategy. And if I'm honest, as I went through these six things, this is the one that I think God put his finger on and said, you, me personally, and us as a church, have some growing to do. Not that we don't pray, but I'm not sure that I could say that I'm dependent on prayer in my leadership. Are you dependent on prayer? Is prayer like your lifeline, your source of power? Like is your first reaction whenever something's confusing or difficult or sad or hard or great or joyful to get on your knees, to go to the Lord in prayer? Is that your first reaction? It isn't always mine. It ought to be ours to pray. A praying community from its very beginning. So that's not a guilt trip, just a challenge for me and for us. Number four, a serving community. The, the first church was get, were giving themselves away. They, we say around here the church is not just for ourselves, but for our world, for the community. They're, they were known for their love for each other, but that spilled out in their care and love for others around them. In fact, there are letters written to the Emperor Julian in the second century who uh, were saying these Christians are putting us to shame because they care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. 
Like everybody cares for their own, but they're doing something different. They're caring for the people that they have no association with them, that would otherwise oppose them. They were a serving community. Acts 2, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some have read that and thought, ah, see, political communism. That's what the church is supposed to be. This is not what it's saying. It's more of a, a spiritual communalism than political communism. It doesn't say they didn't have possessions. It says they did not see their possessions as their own. We'll see that in Acts 4, 32 to 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him, so they did, belong, they did have belongings, but they didn't view their stuff as, this is mine. Mine was not the, remember, the, what's, the, what's the movie? Is it uh, Finding Nemo? Well, seagulls, mine, 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 mine. That's not the cry of the Christian. Mine, right? Theirs is, uh, it's, it's, it's yours, ours, theirs. A friend of mine often says this, and the question isn't how much of my stuff am I going to give to God, it's how much of his stuff am I going to keep for myself. And this was true about the church. They were unique. Timothy Keller puts it this way, that the church in the ancient world was radically opposite of the culture in one specific, well, many ways, but one specific way that stood out. They were, they were promiscuous with their wealth. They gave it away. Stingy with their bodies. The Greco-Roman world was the opposite. They were promiscuous with their bodies. They were stingy with their wealth. I love that. That's, a, that's profoundly true. We see it here in the story of Acts. They didn't look at their stuff as theirs, but as belonging to God, to the community, the fellowship, and to the needs of the people around them. There's a powerful connection between their service and their witness also. Number five, they were a, a worshiping community. A worshiping community. I'll tell this little story. When we were at dinner the other night, Pastor Enoch and Chanel, and my wife and I, and Pastor Sterling and his wife, Sherry, he said, How, what time does service start? I said, nine. The next service at 10.30. He goes, oh, your service is only an hour and a half? I said, no, just an hour. They looked at me like, what? Because I know, I, I was at their service. It's two and a half hours long. So you go to St. Croix, it's beautiful, but prepare yourself, you're going to worship. You're, they're not going to be in a hurry there. He said, well, maybe we could learn from you and shorten ours. I said, well, maybe we could learn from you and extend ours. And a worshiping community doesn't just mean how long do you sing. It means your life is given in worship. Your life is an expression of praise to God. So what we're doing is examining and, uh, the distinctives of this church. We're looking at the distinctives of this community so that we can learn about us. But you know what they were doing? The early church wasn't going, what are our distinctives? What makes us unique? They were focused on the distinctiveness and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a worshiping community. They were all about him and his glory, not about themselves. Acts 2, 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. This is interesting. This word, praise and favor go together here. This word favor is the Greek word charis. It means grace. Praising God and having favor. Their worship, their life of praise, their life of worship, of devotion, produced favor with people. Even those who scratched their head and didn't understand why they worship this dead guy, they, but, but recognize something about their life, the way they give themselves away. Does the church today have favor in the culture? Would you say there's a gracious attitude toward evangelical Christianity today? 
Some of you are like, mm, no. <laughs> well, the, I, I would acknowledge there's some hostility, there's secularism, there's opposition, there's the narrative of the media that's told that it isn't always accurate. Okay, we could say that. But on the other side of the ledger, perhaps some of it is because we've lost touch with what it means to be the church. We aren't really giving ourselves away in full devotion to the Lord and to each other and to service and to prayer. They were a worshiping community. Praising God means to speak of his excellence continually. The psalmist says, let your praise be ever on my lips. Psalm 22, 3, some of you will know this. The old King James says that God inhabits the praises of his people, of Israel, or is enthroned on the praises. The, the Greek word there is, the Hebrew word is yeshab. It means to sit enthroned in, to dwell in. So it doesn't mean that God is only present when his people praise him. It means he's especially present when his people praise him. When, when we come together, and I know that, I know, I've, it, what's funny to me is sometimes people come to church and they're new to church, and they, I've heard this so many times, guys will say, oh, I like your message, but what's with all the singing, right? Like, it feels like it's filler to get to the message. That is not what it is. We come together and we're lifting our voices. As Anton said, regardless of how they sound, and he sounds 100 times better than me with a sore throat anyway. We lift our voices in praise because my, heart, my mind and my heart are agreeing with what I'm singing. He's worthy to be praised. He has made a way. He is holy. And God dwells in that and speaks to our hearts through it. When we we are praising a worshiping community. Number six, last. A witnessing community. A church devoted to Jesus does not keep the message of Jesus to themselves. A church on mission, committed to Jesus talks about him, tells people about him, shares his message with other people. You heard Rachel say it in the video a moment ago, right? I want my neighbors to know about the love of God. I want them to know Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have a neighbor like Rachel? Can people say that about you? We say uh, every house, a chapel on its street. If you didn't know this, that's where our name comes from. Every house, a chapel on its street. A chapel is a small home, place of worship that's connected to a larger whole. Your home should be that, a place of grace and faith and impact and service and worship and prayer and witness. Your neighbors know that you love, serve, and follow Jesus? They have any idea? Do you pull into your attached garage to put the door down, go into your house? Wave to them when you put the garbage out or get the mail, but... I'm saying this because often that's what I do. A church on mission, the people of Jesus, talk about him with joy, not guilt, not condemnation. They can't help it. Look at Acts 2.47 one more time. Having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Who added to their number? Who added to their number? The Lord, you and I don't save or convert or fix or transform anybody. God does that. Only God does that. By the power of the gospel and the cross and his spirit that comes into people's lives. But we can talk about him. What we can do is tell people about his love, about his mercy, about the fact that forgiveness and grace are available. The Lord added their number day by day, those who are being saved. Acts 4, 31 and verse 33. 
when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. One more passage, Acts 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple courts, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus, that he's the Messiah, that he's the one. In fact, I I love this phrase, from house to house every day. Sounds a little bit like the neighborhood church vision. Every day, house to house, street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood, community by community, campus by campus, people are living, worshiping, praying, sharing, serving, and witnessing to who this God is. It's really not rocket science what the church is supposed to be. I think sometimes we are guilty of complicating it, overcomplicating it. It has always been this, a people that come together because of their shared love of Jesus. Now, I I know that it could feel to you like, at this point in the sermon, go out there and be more devoted. Pray more, witness more, worship more, serve more, give more, show up more. Ready? Go be more devoted. You probably walked in here thinking you ought to be more devoted. That doesn't have any power to change your life. Why were those early believers so devoted? What was it about them? Were they just better than us? Just more spiritual? Oh, the people in the Bible were... No. I think what the missing ingredient for many of us is this. The reason they were so radically devoted to Christ and his cause is because they were so convinced that Jesus was 100% devoted to them. I really think the level of my devotion has everything to do with how in touch I am with the level of his devotion to me. That's the message of the cross. What expense did God spare? Is there a level to which he would not go to demonstrate his love for you? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing he will not or has not done for you because of his great love for you and for us, his people. He's redeemed us by giving his very life. The more you get in touch with how much he loves you, how much he sacrificed for you, the more devoted you will, we will be to him and to each other. But if, if it's just kind of a distant memory, once upon a time I prayed a prayer and church is a good thing to do, it's good for my family, it's good to help us be better people, well then it's just an add-on to our already busy suburban lives. Well, that's not the message of the New Testament. That's not what Christ has called us to. Those first believers knew deep in their soul that Jesus, the God of the universe, was radically devoted to them. And so they were radically devoted to him. Might that be true of us? Let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge there is a gap between the things that we read about and the things we desire and the things we experience in our own lives. It's easy, I think, for me and for many of us to to look at the church, our church or any church, and criticize it from a distance and say, we ought to be this, it ought to be that. Perhaps, God, by your spirit, you're putting a finger on us and asking us to take these six things and measure our own hearts. And I know, deep in my soul, God, that you're calling each of us to fall on our knees and acknowledge that you, the King of heaven, the Lord of all the earth, are radically devoted to us And we see that through the death and resurrection of your son. 
Let that be our motivation as your people, the church. We pray this in your name. Amen. It's good, it's good for us to sing that as a prayer. For all my days, I choose to praise, to serve you, to worship you, to share about your love. And by the way, our days are getting shorter, at least here on this earth. Let's use them for the purpose he's given us, to be his people in the world. Go now in the grace, mercy, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory and honor in the church and in all the earth, now and forever. Amen.